Turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13, as we continue studying our way through this first gospel. Matthew 13, we'll look at verses 31 and 32 today. Very brief, <clears throat> brief passage. <clears throat> Matthew 13, 31. <clears throat> when I was a kid, you could buy these little packages of uh, magic rocks. I think you can still find them. They probably cost you a lot more. When you put them in water, then they grow into this magnificent crystal formation. Well, I remember the first time I tried to, what great expectations I had. I couldn't wait to get home and to see it work. To my young eyes, the pictures on the package were just dazzling. So when I got home, I found my old fishbowl, the former home of many unfortunate fish. And I put in just the right amount of water and poured the magic crystals into the water. And then I watched carefully to see them grow as uh, nothing happened. Oh, wait, I think I see it growing. I know, I guess not. Did I do it right? Yeah, that's what it says here to do. What's the matter with this stuff? I concluded. I got chipped. Folks, I suspect that's exactly how Jesus' disciples felt. He had come announcing this glorious kingdom of heaven coming to the earth. They were filled with expectation, and some of them left everything to follow him. And then nothing happened. In fact, it was worse than nothing. The very leaders of that kingdom, which was supposed to grow, began to resist Jesus and reject him. What had gone wrong? What was happening? And so in our text this morning, Jesus tells them, and us, a little parable. Let me read it. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all your seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and perch in its branches. Simple little parable. Let me mention two things that we ought to learn from it. The first is this. Christ grows his kingdom out of nothing. Christ grows his kingdom out of nothing. Sometimes I think that smallness, seeming insignificance and obscurity is, is one of the most difficult things God's people face. Here we are, even this morning, claiming that we have ultimate truth, that we know the one who is the way and the truth and the life, claiming to teach that which comes from God himself. And who are we? This little group of people? No numbers, no money. No power, no influence. This all sounds absurd. How are we to understand such a situation? Well, Jesus said, consider the mustard seed. Now, the mustard seed is not actually the smallest seed on the face of the earth. To make this verse say that is to press literal interpretation way too far. 
But in the culture to which Jesus spoke, the mustard seed was generally spoken of as, in, in a proverbial sense, as the ultimate expression of something minute. The oppressive thing, however, about the mustard seed was not just its smallness, but the contrasting largeness of the plant that grew from it. I've seen some mustard growing around this part of the country, and it's not very impressive, I'll tell you the truth. There's no birds uh, resting there. But the variety of mustard plant growing in the area where Jesus told this parable springs from a tiny little seed and grows into a height of a bush that's 10 or 12 feet high, and its stems get rigid and provide an opportune place for birds to nest, and, and, and it's, it becomes like a tree which is exactly what Jesus described here. Such is the kingdom of heaven. Christ's kingdom, which seems so insignificant, will grow to dominate the world. Christ grows this great kingdom, though, seemingly out of nothing. Actually, Jesus does not paint an entirely new picture in this parable. The prophet Ezekiel made a similar prediction back in Ezekiel 17, verses 22 to 24. He spoke of the day when God would take a tiny little twig off of a tree and plant it and grow it into a giant tree, which would provide protection and, and a dominion over all of its surroundings, and the birds of the field would nest there. That, too, was a picture of the coming kingdom of God. The problem is that both Ezekiel's prophecy and Jesus' parable sounded impossible. In Ezekiel's day, as he talked about the glorious growth of the kingdom of God, there was no kingdom left. The people of Israel had been carted off in exile to Babylon as slaves. God's kingdom seemed to have been past history. Similarly, Jesus' parable about God's coming kingdom seemed absurd. God would have to grow it out of nothing. Jesus had no throne, no army, no political office, no political machine, no clout, no money. Yet here he is saying that his kingdom will dominate the whole earth, that it will in effect fulfill Ezekiel's absurd prophecy. Oh, but it's even more absurd than that. For Jesus was already being rejected by the leaders of God's kingdom as it was. His closest followers would also abandon him. And he would be crucified and buried dead. His claims were not only absurd, they were impossible. Oh, but don't be afraid of the absurdity of insignificance. Jesus promised to build his great kingdom out of virtually nothing, mustard seed. And that is exactly what he is doing. That striking reality has been captured in the familiar little poem that I'm sure you've heard. And let me just read it to you again, the little poem called One Life. It goes like this. He was born in a stable in an obscure village. From there, he traveled less than 200 miles. He never won an election. He never went to college. He never owned a home. He never had a lot of money. 
He became an itinerant preacher, but popular opinion turned against him. He was betrayed by a close friend and his other friends ran away. He was unjustly condemned and crucified on a cross with common thieves on a hill overlooking the town dump. And when he died, he was buried in a borrowed grave. Now 20 centuries have come and gone. Empires have risen and fallen. Mighty armies have marched and powerful rulers have reigned. Yet no one has affected men as much as he. He is the central figure in the human race. He is the Messiah, the Son of God. His name is Jesus. And folks, his kingdom continues to grow to this very day. Citizens of his kingdom are found in every corner of this globe, speaking thousands of different languages. This very morning, the citizens of his kingdom gather in tiny huts and in homes and in and, 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 and simple little gathering places and assembly halls and in huge ornate cathedrals to sing his praise and to hear his word to them and to affirm anew their allegiance to him. But it takes priority over every other commitment. Sometimes they meet openly, sometimes secretly, sometimes they meet in fear of their lives. But over the centuries, attempts to curtail the gathering of the citizens of the kingdom of Christ have proven futile. Directly or indirectly, Christ's kingdom is influencing the course of every nation on earth. Oh, Jesus may have sounded absurd, but he was not mistaken. He has grown and he continues to grow his mighty kingdom out of nothing. And he isn't finished yet. The knowledge of him will eventually cover the earth as the waters of the sea. And on that day he will return in glory. And one day he will return in glory and on that day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus is the Lord. And the kingdom he has grown out of nothing will be the only kingdom left. Dear people, this truth has profound implications for us, personally and corporately. Personally, it may be that this morning you realize you're a nobody, that you're nothing, that you're a loser. A failure, washed up, hopeless. Your life may be such a wreck that your family has given up on you, that you have given up on yourself. But Christ is growing his kingdom out of nobodies. And he is still pleased to make something out of someone like you. Indeed, he has already done everything necessary to save you. He lived the perfect life that you could never live to satisfy God the Father. And, and, and he, he died to pay the sin debt that you could never pay. And now he is pleased to accept you as his own when you simply stop trusting yourself and what you've done and instead run to him asking him to save you. So if God has allowed you to get to the end of your rope, He has done so so that you would be willing 
to come unconditionally to him with no pride of self, no agenda of your own, no rival commitments, but wholehearted surrender to Jesus. For Christ is growing his great king, kingdom out of nothings, nobodies like you and like me. Who have given up on ourselves and run to him for mercy. Oh, but this truth is not just about individuals. It applies to every congregation of his church. The apostle Paul applied it to the church at Corinth when he wrote to them, brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. And isn't Wiser Lake Chapel just like that? Not many wise, not many noble, not many famous, not many influential here. For 60 years or so, this church was the poor stepchild of the real churches. And your pastor's no better, no Ivy League credentials, no connections, no clout. What we have here is no more than a handful of mustard seeds. But here God has been pleased to build his kingdom out of such nothingness to use us way beyond the influence we might have ever expected to have. And all our weaknesses, all the foibles of this motley collection of folks has only guaranteed that Christ Jesus gets the praise and the glory because who are we? For he obviously has started with nothing here. Oh, never forget, God is not looking for people with great abilities. He's simply looking for availability. He's not looking for people of great wealth. He's simply looking for people who will give all they have. He doesn't demand that we have great intellect. He simply calls us to love him with the mind that he's given us. He's not looking for people from influential families. He's looking for people who identify themselves first and foremost above everything else as a child of God. This morning I call you to stand in awe of such a great king and give yourself to him. For Christ Jesus is building his mighty kingdom and he is building it out of virtually nothing. So how does he do that? Well, that brings us to our second point, which is this. The power is in the promise of God's word. The power is in the promise of God's word. You know, a good magician will do tricks which will leave you speechless, but he will never tell you how he did them. It must always remain a secret for his power is in your inability to figure it out. But the Lord tells us clearly how he does his work. Here, as in the parables of the, of the sower back a few verses, uh, 
The kingdom comes about by the sowing and the growth of seed. And what is that seed that bears good fruit? Well, he tells us a little earlier, it's the word of God. Throughout the whole Bible, it's no secret that the power is in the promise of God's word. Daniel and Ezekiel say that clearly in passages that are somewhat similar to this text. Three times in Ezekiel 31, we read, this is what the sovereign Lord says, his word. Daniel 4, we read, this is the decree that the Most High has issued. His word went forth. In Ezekiel 17, that I spoke of earlier, I, the Lord, have spoken and I will do it. The power is in the promise of God's word. In Jeremiah 23, the Lord says vividly, is not my word like fire and like a hammer that breaks the rock to pieces? Indeed, the, the, the message of all the prophets is permeated by this simple, powerful phrase, thus saith the Lord. Hebrews 4 makes very pointedly the power of the promise of his word. There we read, the word of God is living and active. It is sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing the soul and spirit and the joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Elsewhere in the New Testament, the apostle Paul makes the same point again. In Romans 1, he writes, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God for salvation. In 1 Corinthians 1, he says it again, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but for those who are being saved, it is the power of God. The power is in the promise of God's word, the gospel, the word of the cross, the word of God. And so we go out to face a world filled with seemingly hopeless realities. Sin and death and crime and rebellion and hopelessness and helplessness. People in despair. A world falling apart. People being misused. And we go out to face it all with what? Words. <laughs> words. Just words. But the words we have are nothing less than the words of the living God. The promise of grace, the good news of forgiveness, the good news of the gospel. And through that seed, that word of God, God changes lives and changes churches. He calls into existence things that did not used to exist. He grows his mighty kingdom until it dominates the earth for the power is in the word of God's promise. You see, without his word, without the message of his grace, we have nothing. You cannot change somebody's heart. I cannot change somebody's heart. You may be very smart, but none of us is wise enough to solve the sin problems and all their complexity in this world. In fact, you and I cannot even keep our own hearts fervent and alive toward God. God's word must do that. So I call you to give attention to God's word. Saturate your minds with it. Meditate on it day and night. Then speak it and proclaim it. And pass it on. 
People don't need to know how smart you are. They need to hear the promise of God's word. Teach it to your children, for you cannot forever control what they do. They need transformed hearts. And the power of God to transform hearts is in his word. And as we go, sowing the seed of God's word, we go with this promise from the Lord, this wonderful promise in Isaiah 55. He says, my word that goes out from my mouth will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills will burst into song before you, and the very trees of the field will clap their hands as God grows his great kingdom out of nothing by the seed of God's word of promise. Oh, yes. About my magic crystal soaking insignificantly and disappointingly in the fishbowl. Well, I gave up on them in unbelief. I concluded it was never going to happen. So I went on out to play and later went to bed. Having learned a valuable lesson, the promise of greatness doesn't always come true. Oh, but in the morning, what to my wondering eyes should appear but a fishbowl full of magic, graceful, stunning, mysterious crystals in a spectacular array of colors formed not by my skill, not by my knowledge, not by my clever manipulation, not even by my believing in it, but by the power of the seed planted in that bowl according to the word of the promise given. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what you are doing is complex beyond anything that we could understand. We don't understand how the world works. We don't understand how you're, what you're doing and in your sovereign control of it. It often makes no sense to us. We don't understand why your people suffer. We don't understand why some of the most faithful ones are dying today and struggling today. But we can understand what you tell us here. That out of nothing you're building your kingdom that's going to and has already proven that it permeates the whole world. And that you're doing that by the insignificance, the seeming insignificance of your promise, your word, the gospel of your grace. So, Father, in our sophistry, may we not be lost, not thinking, not, not trying to figure it all out and trusting our own imagination, but, Lord, may we simply believe what you say and take your word and live it and speak it and share it and train our children with it and believe in spite of whatever we see to the contrary, believe that you will do what you have promised to do and delight, Lord, to be part of it all the days that you give us until the days that we see you, day that we see you in glory and the day that we see a new heaven and a new earth and the kingdom of God uh, alive and well on this planet.
Thank you for the promise. Thank you for explanation. Give us faith to believe it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.